Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, Van Mar Drive is a quiet, tree-lined residential street in the city of Olathe, Kansas. It consists primarily of single-family homes built in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Today, those houses sell for just over a quarter of a million dollars, and it remains a desirable area just as much now as it did then. Van Mar Drive is a leafy neighborhood, just a stone's throw from the local high school and a short distance from the city center. Olathe, the fourth most populous city in the Kansas City metropolitan area, was founded in the mid-1800s. It's located around 20 miles southwest of downtown Kansas City, making it the ideal bedroom community for workers and families alike. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead, and welcome to Episode 45 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law & Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. It was a peaceful Saturday morning on September 20th, 1980. Children on Van Mar Drive were taking advantage of the pleasant weather and were already playing outside by 8 a.m. Ten-year-old James Post lived with his family at 901 Van Mar Drive. Shortly after 8 a.m., he walked across the street to Jason Conrad's home to see if he wanted to come outside and play. He was accompanied by another friend, Craig Weber, who had spent the night at his home. Craig was a familiar face at the Post residence and was treated by the family like another one of the children. James and Craig stood patiently on the doorstep, waiting for Jason to open the front door. Instead of Jason, they were greeted by his mother, Judy, who informed them that he was still asleep in bed. Disappointed, the boys turned around and returned to the James home, where they played ball for a while in the backyard, before retreating inside to continue playing. As the two boys played in the living room, James' sister, seven-year-old Lori, and his aunt, six-year-old Stephanie, went outside to play in the front yard. At just after 9 a.m., James' father, 51-year-old Robert, went outside to collect the mail. 
As he turned to re-enter the family home, he noticed that there was a gift-wrapped box placed on top of his white-over-blue Mercury that was parked in the driveway. The box had gray tape on the sides and was marked, Handle with Care. As he got closer, he could see the box was addressed to his 19-year-old daughter, Diane. Robert brought the package in the kitchen and placed it on the table. Moments later, James and Craig came into the kitchen looking for a glass of water. Robert, his wife Norma, and three of their children, Richard, Susan, and Diane, sat at the kitchen table as the two boys guzzled their drinks. Craig was curious. He wondered what was in the box, but he didn't ask. He assumed it must have been a present for Diane. The rest of the neighborhood were preparing for the day ahead, much like the Post family were. Many were eating breakfast while others were reading the daily newspaper or sitting down to watch some television. As they carried on with their daily routine, a thunderous explosion erupted in the neighborhood, smashing windows and sending objects crashing to the floor. Those who heard and felt the large blast ran outside to try and find the source of it. As one neighbor, Sandra Hubbard, recalled, It wasn't the kind of sound you wonder about. It was the kind of sound you rush out of the house to see what happened. A cloud of smoke billowed in the air, and as the dust began to settle, residents in the neighborhood could see that it was coming from 901 Van Mar Drive, the post home. Dave Pecker, who lived at 832, recalled, I had my back to the explosion, but I heard it and turned around to see smoke and debris about three or four times the height of the house. Parents in the neighborhood ushered their children inside as they bolted down to the post residence. Debris surrounded the home, which had partially collapsed onto itself. The force of the explosion had left only the chimney and part of the living room standing. Lori and Stephanie were in a state of panic outside the home. They were playing outside when the blast hurled them onto the pavement as debris, intermingled with flesh and bone, came showering down on top of them. Neighbors bundled up the girls and rushed them to safety as phone calls began to flood emergency services. Paramedics and the fire department rushed to Van Mar Drive. As they pulled up outside, 19-year-old David emerged from the wreckage. Wrapped in a white sheet covered by dust and blood, his face was ashen with fear. He screamed for help and said his family was still trapped in the rubble. As his eyes fixed on the scene before him, he could immediately see the severity of the situation. Humid appendages, flesh, and organs were spread out across the front lawn. One mangled body was hanging across the foundation of the home, with part of his head blown away, while another decapitated body was crumpled up near the foundation. Sheriff Douglas Stribe recalled the gruesome scene. There were parts of bodies all over the yards. I didn't know whether they were parts of different bodies or all one body. David was led to a waiting ambulance as emergency personnel sifted through the debris to try and recover any survivors. A whimper could be heard coming from behind what remained of the home. As emergency personnel were scouring the wreckage, Marilyn Reed, who lived nearby, ran to the backyard. Here, she found Craig, who was lying underneath the debris. He was severely injured, but was still alert. She could see that Craig had sustained severe cuts to his face and left eye. He told Marilyn his name and where he lived. Marilyn crouched down and held Craig tightly as she called for the paramedics to come around the back. Olathe police arrived at the home within minutes. 
by initial appearances, it was speculated the explosion could have been caused by a gas leak. However, once an investigation commenced, it quickly became apparent that this was no gas leak. There was no distinctive smell of gas emanating from the home, and there was a lack of fire, as expected with a gas leak. The evidence pointed toward a much more sinister scenario. The Post family had been targeted by a bomb. Robert Post was born August 20th, 1929. He served 17 years in the U.S. Air Force and saw battle during the Korean War. Norma Jean was born January 7, 1933, in St. Joseph, Missouri. The couple met in the early 1950s, and on February 2, 1953, they married. They went on to have nine children together, Diane, Susan, Richard, James, David, Michael, Joseph, Cindy, and Lori. Robert and Norma worked hard to provide their family with a stable and loving environment. Robert worked long hours as a plant manager at Whirlpool in Lenexa, while Norma worked in the accounting department of Montgomery Wards and Oak Park Mall. In addition to their careers, they founded Junior Softball Inc. Johnson County, where Robert served as the president and Norma worked as the secretary. Their son James was the star pitcher for the softball team, and the family bonded over their love for the sport. In 1979, they moved to the two-story ranch-style home on Van Meyer Drive. Once settled in, they made friends with ease. Norma struck up a bond with her neighbor, Judy Conrad, and the women would meet up each night for a walk around the neighborhood. Judy fondly recalled, The posts were wonderful people, the greatest people you'd ever meet, always joking. Whenever Judy and her husband went out for the evening, Robert and Norma would babysit their son. Judy always made sure to return the favor. The family had instilled hardworking values in all of their children. As soon as they graduated high school, they went straight into the job market. Richard, a married father of two, found employment at H&R Inspection, while Susan worked as a secretary at Twin City Tool Company. David and Diane were working at the Sonic Drive-In, and Joseph was stationed at Whiteman Air Force Base. The other children worked various jobs, while Cindy was a stay-at-home mother who lived nearby with her husband and three-year-old son. As for James, Robert and Nora's youngest son, he was a fourth-grade student at Northview Elementary School, where he was popular with classmates and teachers. At just 10 years old, he had the world at his feet and had all of the possibilities a little boy could look forward to. The school's principal, Anthony Pettyjohn, said, James was such a friendly and outgoing boy, he'd always had something to tell me about. He'd just done this, or his family had just done that. Due to the suspicious nature of the explosion, the Treasury Department's Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Department was called to the scene. Five bodies, or what remained of bodies, were recovered once the dust had settled. They were identified as Robert and Norma and three of their children, 19-year-old Diane, 20-year-old Susan, and 21-year-old Richard. 10-year-old James was still clinging to life, his body badly mangled by the blast. He was rushed to the hospital where he underwent emergency surgery. Unfortunately, the injuries he sustained were fatal, and within 90 minutes, James would become the sixth victim of the explosion. Back in 
Back at Van Meyer Drive, investigators sifted through what remained of the home for clues to the source of the explosion. They were able to find bits of wire and metal and remnants of a box. They determined that the force of the blast was the rough equivalent of ten sticks of dynamite. By that evening, they had the name of a potential suspect, 27-year-old Danny Crump. He was the ex-husband of Diane, and they had been in the middle of a messy custody battle. Crump was arrested at his home around midnight, and Deputy Attorney Dennis Moore announced that he would be charged with six counts of first-degree murder. Danny Crump was a twice-divorced father of five. His formal education did not extend beyond the seventh grade, and he bounced from menial job to menial job. In mid-1979, Crump was cruising in his car near a local supermarket when he spotted Diane Post. He immediately noticed how beautiful the young woman was, and he pulled up alongside her, striking up a conversation. Diane was known for her warm and welcoming demeanor, so she made no qualms about the unwarranted conversation. Crump's gift of gab won Diane over, and they embarked on a whirlwind romance and were married just three months later. The wedding was a quiet one, only attended by the couple's nearest and dearest. After the ceremony, the Post and Crump family had a cookout celebrating the new couple. Crump and Diane moved into a trailer on Circle Drive before moving into a home in DeSoto. While the marriage appeared to be off to a good start, things soon started to go downhill. On May 6, 1980, the couple welcomed a baby boy they named Randy. The relationship had already been marred by difficulties, and now that Diane had another person to care for, their son Randy, she thought it would be best if she and Danny went their separate ways. On the 29th of May, Diane walked out of the family home, taking Randy with her. She filed for divorce, and on the 11th of June, she was awarded temporary custody of their son. Trouble was brewing on July 6th when police were called to the Crumps' parents' home. Crump had been shot once in the chest. He had earlier been out on a date with another woman, and as he stood outside his parents' home, he said he heard a noise coming from up the road. Crump went inside and grabbed a bar and walked up the road to inspect the source of the sound. Moments later, the distinct sound of a gunshot emanated through the neighborhood. Crump stumbled back inside, suffering from a gunshot wound to the chest. His mother, Ellen, recalled, he knows who did it. Crump refused to name the elusive shooter, but his parents were adamant that somehow the posts were involved. The posts denied involvement, and those close to the family suggested that the gunshot wound was self-inflicted. In August, the divorce was finalized, and Diane was ready to move on with her life. Robert and Norma welcomed her and Randy into their home with open arms. Over at Alefa Community Hospital, four-month-old Randy was reported to be in critical condition. As the explosion ripped through the home, shards of glass and debris had cut his face and body. The force of the blast sent him flying into the air before he tumbled to the grass in the backyard. By the next morning, Randy had improved a little, and his condition was upgraded to serious. Craig, who was visiting the home when the bomb detonated, was in satisfactory condition. He had sustained severe injuries to his face and left eye, but he made a full recovery after celebrating his ninth birthday in the hospital. The party was complete with gifts and cake, but Craig's injuries prevented him from being able to eat anything. 
It was the second tragedy to befall Craig's family in the last two weeks. They had just lost their 11-year-old son after he was injured in a bicycle accident. Craig was not only left physically scarred by the bomb, but emotionally scarred as well. Nevertheless, he was a tough little boy who took his treatment in stride. Mike recalled visiting him in the hospital. Even after the explosion, the first time I saw him in the emergency room at the hospital, Randy was crying. Craig was hanging in there tough. 19-year-old David was the only one inside the home not to receive critical injuries. He had been asleep in his bedroom when he awoke to find himself in the middle of a nightmare. Randy's condition continued to improve, but now he was left with the prospect of having no family. Crump had four other children from his first marriage, and since his arrest, his parents had taken them in. Daniel and Ellen Crump were haunted by their son's actions, and they feared how the community would now judge them as his parents. Daniel was working at Summons Gun Specialties Incorporated, and he commented to the Olathe News, The only thing I told my boss was, don't hold it against me. The only thing I can do now is quit and try to go somewhere else. The Crumps lived in a four-room home off Timberlane Road, which was already cramped with the two of them and their three other sons. They said they would be more than willing to take Randy in as well, making the total in the home ten people. The couple struggled to reconcile the man accused of such a crime with the son they had stood by for the past 27 years. David said, He had everything going for him, and we always backed him up. We put his name on all of our items, the car, the house, just in case something happened to us so he'd have a place to live. Back at the hospital, Randy was well on the mend. His surviving siblings had all come to visit him and fuss around him, as the staff brought him teddy bears to help him feel more at home. Mike Post, the oldest surviving son, said he planned on adopting Randy and was already in talks with lawyers. On September 22nd, Danny Crump appeared in court to be charged. He was charged with six counts of felony murder as opposed to six counts of first-degree murder. And while the two counts are similar, felony murder omitted premeditation. It had been expected that Crump would be charged with first-degree murder, but District Attorney Dennis Moore failed to elaborate on why he was charged instead with felony murder. The charges that were filed, however, indicated that Crump did not intend to kill anybody with the bomb he had planted. Crump had allegedly anticipated the bomb would detonate while on top of Robert's car. In addition to the felony murder charges, Crump was additionally charged with three counts of aggravated battery for the injuries sustained by Randy, Craig, and David. He was also charged with arson on an automobile by means of an explosive. Crump was held on $500,000 bond, which was the largest bond ever set in Johnson County at the time. The number of fatalities in the bomb also matched that of what was currently the worst domestic slaying in U.S. history, the April 1966 murder of the Suarez family in New York. In that case, Jose Antonio Suarez stabbed his wife and their five children to death. After Danny Crump was arrested in connection with the blast, he confessed to planting the bomb. Crump admitted to rigging up the box with dynamite. He said he wasn't sure how much dynamite was stacked into the box because he was drunk at the time. A small battery, copper wire, and tape went into the device, which was to detonate when jarred. Investigators asked Crump how the package was supposed to be jarred. 
He replied that he anticipated the strong winds blowing that night may have knocked it over, causing it to explode. He stated, It was windy that night, and I thought the wind would wiggle the car a little bit and it would go off, but it didn't. He claimed he never intended the bomb to hurt anybody, just scare the Post family. He said, If I had known that this would happen, I never would have done it. I would never even gone near that place. It was supposed to hurt the car. At first, Crump had denied any knowledge of the bomb. He wasn't yet aware of the number of casualties. Detective Larry Griffin then told him that his ex-wife and son had both been killed in the blast and that other members were blown to bits so small you couldn't hold them in your hand. Crump appeared to be surprised. He broke down into tears and repeatedly said, no, no. It became apparent to investigators that Crump had been planning the bomb for at least a month and had revealed his plan to several people. One of them was his 17-year-old girlfriend, Sandra Gould. Sometime in early September, Trump had divulged to Sandra that he wanted to get some dynamite, perhaps from a nearby quarry, and then rig it up into a lamp and give it to Diane. He wanted to gift the lamp to Diane, and when she plugged it in, it would detonate. Crump also told his lifelong friend, Chuck Price, about this idea. Around the same time he spoke with Sandra, he told Chuck he planned on scaring the Post family by planting a bomb outside their home. Chuck recalled, He said he was giving considerable thought that he could get access to explosives, dynamite. He said he was going to take it over there and put it on the hood of the car. Crump had confided in both Sandra and Chuck that he was upset over the child custody proceedings and wanted to take matters into his own hands and get something done. By the 19th of September, the wheels were already in motion for the disturbing plan. Crump spent the day with his girlfriend, Sandra. Over the course of the next 12 hours, Crump downed 12 to 15 beers and had half a bottle of whiskey. He and Sandra also smoked some hashish. They spent some time at Crump's brother's home before leaving around 2 a.m. Crump said to Sandra that he wanted to pick up a package. They drove over to his trailer and Crump went inside and returned with the box addressed to Diane. Sandra had told investigators that she wasn't aware of what was in the box, but she was mindful of Crump's plans to plant a bomb at the post home. From there, they drove over to the post residence. Sandra sat in the car as Crump carefully lifted out the package and put it on top of Robert's car parked in the driveway. When Crump climbed back into the car, Sandra asked him what the box contained. He refused to answer and told her to forget about it. She didn't ask again because I didn't want to know. Tributes had come flooding in for the family as the survivors were left to pick up the pieces. They were busy ensuring that Randy was well taken care of and preparing for the funeral. David fondly recalled, They were the best mom and dad there ever was. We never did see them get in a fight. That sentiment was echoed by the other surviving children of Robert and Norma. Their other surviving daughter, Cindy, said to the Olathe News that the support of the community had been tremendous, if not overwhelming. She stated, People have brought food, clothes, everything. Even perfect strangers have come and offered to do anything they could. David and Lori had already moved in with their big brother, Mike, and there were plans for Randy to join them when he was released from the hospital. The community had truly come together the way a community should in such a tragedy. They did everything in their power to provide the family with as much support as possible. 
On Van Meyer Drive, neighborhood children were collecting money from curious onlookers who had flocked to the tragic neighborhood. They set up a tip jar and collected hundreds of dollars to be handed over to the grieving family. Two trust funds were also established in the aftermath, one at the Olathe State Bank and another at the First National Bank. On September 24th, the community came together to bid one final farewell to the six members of the Post family. The service was held at St. Paul's Catholic Church, where the family had all been members. The mourners were all gathered outside as six identical hearses pulled up. They shuffled into the church through the large double doors flanked by two ushers and two plainclothes police officers and took their places in the pews. The survivors of the Post family sat at the front, and they struggled to hold in tears as the six rose-covered caskets were wheeled into the church. The pallbearers arranged the caskets at the front of the altar in the shape of a cross. Reverend Paul Miller then addressed the crowd. He stared intently at the six caskets and said, In a beautiful family relationship which develops through the years, it is certainly, humanly speaking, the saddest moment of our life to be temporarily separated from our beloved. He said that grief should not be denied and that it was human to feel such an emotion but that those who loved the post should look further beyond that grief. He urged Robert and Norma's children to continue their life of love as their parents so beautifully formed them. As he spoke, there was a tapestry behind the reverend which read, We are family. He addressed the post children and told them, All the wonderful things that have been said about your parents, we hope and pray that your lives will be formed after those inspirations, that you will continue to be that kind of tribute to your parents and deceased brothers and sisters, that you will always grow in love as a family. Following the poignant service, the caskets were transported to Oak Lawn Memorial Gardens for burial. Flags were flown at half-mast in the Memorial Garden, fluttering in the cool morning air as the six caskets were lowered into the ground. Robert and Norma were buried between their four children, Diane and Susan beside their father, and Richard and James beside their mother. Randy could not be at his mother's funeral. He was still being cared for in hospital. In addition to Mike, Cindy also said that she wanted custody of Randy. The siblings were hoping to get joint custody. Mike stated, Our future plan, depending on finances, is to try and find a big house where we can have our privacy but be under the same roof. He was still recovering in hospital when Johnson County Juvenile Judge William Haynes temporarily granted custody to the Kansas Department of Social and Rehabilitation Services. The decision was made because the hospital needed to obtain consent for further medical treatment. Once Randy was well enough to leave the hospital, he moved in with Cindy and her husband Jim, who were caring for Lori as well. At just seven years old, Lori was traumatized by witnessing the blast and woke up most nights from a nightmare. While the family had hoped to get a house big enough for everyone, that just wasn't possible at the time. David moved in with Mike, who was now the figurehead of the family, and the brothers began working on their healing process together. In early October, further charges were filed in relation to the bomb, but these charges weren't filed against Crump. His 18-year-old brother, Billy Burt Crump, was charged with grand theft and burglary. 
On the 18th of September, Billy and Crump had broken into a storage shed at a quarry just southwest of Olathe. Here they stole dynamite, wiring, and blasting caps. Investigators became aware of Billy's role during Crump's confession. As charges were being filed, Crump's arraignment was postponed so that he could undergo a psychiatric evaluation to determine if he was competent to stand trial. His defense attorney, William Grimshaw, had requested the psychiatric evaluation. Crump was subsequently sent to the Kansas State Hospital in Larned. As Crump was being examined in November, the charges against Billy were dropped due in part to miswording of the information filed against him. Defense attorney Scott H. Creamer had argued that burglary could not, by state statute, occur in a three-foot steel cube used for storing blasting caps. Moreover, the owner of the quarry could not verify that more than $100 worth of materials had been stolen. Billy was subsequently free to leave jail, a free man, but charges could be refiled as misdemeanor theft. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In December, Crump was determined to be competent to stand trial, moving him one step closer to the proceedings. It was ultimately decided by the prosecution that no further charges against Billy would be filed, and it was also agreed that the charges of burglary and theft against Crump would be dropped. The most that prosecutors could have charged Crump and Billy with was misdemeanor theft, and they decided it was not worthwhile to pursue the charge because of the six felony murder charges already filed against Crump and the arson charge. Before the year came to a close, it was decided that Crump needed to undergo further psychiatric evaluations. They needed to determine whether he was competent enough to waive his constitutional rights when he provided investigators with his confession. His defense team wanted to prove that Crump was suffering from an intellectual deficiency when he gave that confession, which would, in effect, make him unable to knowingly and voluntarily waive his rights to make the confession. The preliminary hearing was held in the middle of January to determine whether there was enough evidence for Crump to proceed to trial. Testimony would be heard from Craig 
the only survivor of the blast who had been in the kitchen when it detonated. He walked to the witness stand and sat down, shuffling his hands in anxiety. Immediately, his mind was taken back to the day of the blast. He described how he and James were playing ball before coming inside to get a drink of water. He observed the box on the kitchen table. He stated, James was standing next to me. He was closer to the table. He detailed how Diane began to open the lid on the mystery package, and within seconds, the mystery was over. He recalled, Diane peeled back the tape on the sides and started to lift up the box, and an explosion happened. Craig said that he then woke up not knowing where he was. He felt a surge of pain in his face and was unable to move. He was covered by boards that had come crashing down on top of him with the force of the blast. Based on his testimony, it was apparent that Craig had been saved by pure luck. He had been in the kitchen, much like the other six members of the Post family who had perished, but remarkably, the blast hadn't killed him. James had been standing between Craig and the box and had absorbed the vast majority of the initial shock from the blast. Crump's girlfriend, Sandra Gould, also testified during the preliminary hearing. She told the courtroom how Crump had given up on his initial idea of a lamp bomb and instead filled up a box with dynamite. She stated that Crump had told her he intended to hurt Diane because a member of the Post family had shot him in the stomach. By now, investigators working on that case had cleared everybody in the Post family of being involved in the shooting. Sandra admitted to going with Crump to deliver the fatal package, but she was granted immunity from prosecution in exchange for her testimony. It was determined during the preliminary hearing that there was enough evidence against Crump, and he was bound over for trial. His charges were amended, and he now was facing a charge of one count of premeditated murder and five counts of felony murder, as well as three counts of aggravated battery, one count of arson, and one of attempted arson. Danny Crump subsequently entered a plea of not guilty. Before the trial could begin, Crump's defense attorney, Thomas Hamill, attempted to get his confession thrown out of evidence. He argued that the confession had come after being detained for more than five hours. The prosecution argued that the confession was voluntary. Dr. Robert E. Shulman testified that Crump's verbal comprehension skills were so low that given the stressfulness of the interview, he was incapable of freely and knowingly waiving his right to remain silent. It was his belief that Crump was under such a high level of stress that he would have said almost anything to alleviate that tension without fully comprehending the consequences. Dr. Michael Burgess told the courtroom that those who fall into Crump's personality traits and intellectual levels would generally be capable of making impulsive statements. However, he then added that based on his observation of Crump, he was more than capable of making self-serving statements during the interrogation and could probably tolerate such a level of stress. He stated, Based on the intelligence test results, I believe Mr. Crump clearly understood his Miranda rights and reacted as it was read to him. It is my opinion that Mr. Crump would have the capacity to protect himself. Ultimately, the judge would rule that the confession was admissible in court. The jury were seated, and the murder trial was ready to begin on April 13, 1981. Both the families of the victims and the defendant shuffled into the court, taking their respective places on opposing sides of the courtroom. Among the first witnesses to testify was David Post. 
He was fast asleep in his bedroom when the explosion erupted through the family home. The force of the blast ejected him from his bed, awakening under a pile of boards. He recalled, I woke up to an explosion of some kind. When I walked outside the house, there wasn't much of the house left. It was demolished. Then I saw my father and my brother and Randy. My father was just laying by the side of the house, half in and half out. That's all I remember. I saw my little brother James in the neighbor's yard being treated by some doctors or the ambulance people. And I saw Randy. Some people were pulling him out from under some boards. The jury would also hear from Sandra Gould and Chuck Price, who testified about Crump's plans regarding the bomb. Detective Larry Griffin, who conducted Crump's interrogation, detailed the confession to the jury. He described how Crump initially denied any knowledge before breaking down and admitting that he had been the one to place the bomb on the car. During the interrogation, Crump had claimed he didn't intend for the box to be taken inside the home, nor did he intend for it to hurt or kill anybody. In his words, he just wanted to scare the Post family. The most highly anticipated moment of the trial came when Crump took the witness stand. While he confessed to planting the bomb, he now claimed he was innocent. He pointed the finger at Sandra and Chuck. His version of events mirrored Sandra's version of events, at least in the beginning. He described how he and Sandra spent the day and night drinking and smoking hashish, but then they differed. Where Sandra claimed they drove over to the post's home with the box, Crump claimed they fell asleep. He alleged that he woke up to find Sandra missing from the bed. He said it was around 3 a.m. when he awoke and heard a car pull out of the driveway. According to Crump, he saw Sandra driving away from the trailer and followed her in his car. He was asked by defense attorney Hamill why he decided to follow Sandra, and he said, My sister had told me Sandra was going out with someone else. I wanted to see what was going on. He said he followed Sandra to Charles' apartment on West Lula. He said that under the cloak of darkness, he watched a man load a black box into the trunk of a blue car. He said that he could see Sandra clearly, but for a moment, he couldn't tell who the man was. Sandra and the man climbed into the car, and he could then allegedly see that the man was, in fact, Charles. Crump claimed that he followed the car very slowly over railroad tracks near downtown and then onto 901 Van Mar Drive. There, he told the courtroom that Sandra and Chuck got out of the car. Chuck went around to the trunk, lifted out the cardboard box, and carried it very carefully up to the post residence. He said he watched as Chuck then ran back to the car, climbed in, and he and Sandra sped off. Crump went on to claim that the confession he had given following his arrest was a false confession, and that he had given it because, I was under a lot of pressure, and I was scared to death. His testimony was followed by Dr. Robert Shulman, a clinical psychologist from Topeka. He told the jury that he had psychologically examined Crump and found that his emotional makeup was such that he was probably incapable of withstanding the stress of an interrogation. He said that when Crump was unable to physically remove himself from stressful situations, he would make any statement contrary to his best interests. The prosecution would call on a handful of rebuttal witnesses, including Tom Randall, a former employee at Sonic Drive-In. He testified that in August 1980, Crump told him he wanted to 
kill all the Post family. Nanette Glitton, who lived with Chuck, told the jury that they had moved from the apartment in West Lula, where Crump alleged he saw Sandra on the night the bomb was planted. Her testimony was corroborated by Charles Jones, who had moved into Chuck's old apartment on West Lula on the 12th of September. Jimmy Gould, Sandra's brother, also testified that Crump had detonated dynamite on a fishing expedition at a lake in September. Under cross-examination by District Attorney Dennis Moore, Crump was asked, So, everybody's a liar except Danny Crump, is that right? Defense attorney Hamill objected to the comment, and it was sustained by Judge Jones. After four days of testimony, which offered very polarizing scenarios, the prosecution and defense rested. The jury deliberated for about three hours before returning with a verdict. They found Danny Crump guilty of six counts of murder, three counts of aggravated assault, one charge of arson, and one charge of attempted arson. As the verdict was read aloud, Crump had a glazed expression on his face. He showed no semblance of emotion. His mother, Ellen, could be heard quietly sobbing from the spectators' section. As Danny was led from the courtroom, Mike made some comments to the awaiting media outside. He said, Relief, mostly, is what I feel. But there are a lot of mixed emotions for all of us. We understood Danny's constitutional rights to a fair trial, to go through the formalities, but our minds were set an hour after the explosion. He and his surviving siblings, Cindy, Lori, Joseph, and David, had remained united as a family throughout the entire ordeal, and now justice was finally served. Before leaving the court building, Mike had another comment to make. Nothing can bring back our loved ones. I can't say their deaths were absolved by this, but Danny will get his punishment in the next world. I just want to make this clear. We feel no bitterness toward any member of the Crump family or friends, but honestly, it's hard not to have very strong feelings toward Danny. I have no sympathy for him. It borders on hate. David revealed to the media that he had been struggling with survivor's guilt. He was the only member of the Post family inside the home to survive. He stated, Every now and then, I ask myself, why me? Why did I come out alive? But especially last night. All this week just kind of got to me. I think about it a lot, though, waking up to that unbelievable noise. I'll never forget it. The sentencing phase followed in July. Crump was asked if he had anything to say before receiving his sentence. He stated, Yes, sir, I do. I did not commit this crime. Sandra Gould and Chuck Price are the two who should be standing here in my place today. Chuck Price built the bomb and accompanied Gould to the post home. Danny Crump was sentenced to six concurrent life sentences and an additional maximum of 80 years. He was ordered to serve at least 15 years for the six murders and 19 years for the five other charges. Defense attorney Hamill requested that Crump serve his sentence at the state psychiatric hospital, while District Attorney Moore demanded he be sent to prison for his senseless, stupid acts. Judge Earl Jones said that he was leaving it up to the Secretary of Corrections to determine whether he served that sentence in prison or the state psychiatric hospital. Ultimately, Crump would be ordered to serve his sentence in prison. In the aftermath of the sentence, the surviving members of the Post family began to rebuild their lives in earnest. 
memories of the tragedy would last a lifetime, but with Crump behind bars, they were able to begin focusing on the happier moments in their lives. The weekends at the lake, the family dinners, the softball games, these were all memories that the family cherished. Mike said to the Kansas City Star, Our closeness is the only reason we survived. Personally, if I had lost everyone except myself, I would never have made it. I'd be a babbling idiot right now. The blast had shattered the sanctity of the family, but it also brought them closer together. They had a bond that nothing could ever come between. Little Randy was now permanently living with Cindy and her blossoming family and Lori. It was a blessing in disguise that he was just four months old when the explosion tore apart his family, as he had no memory of it or the aftermath. The couple would go on to legally adopt him, and his family's love buoyed him when he learned about his natural parents when old enough to understand. The memory of Robert and Norma lived on in Junior Softball, Inc., the countywide league they founded in 1970. The league scorebook included a sketch of the posts on the inside cover, a fitting tribute. In 1982, Danny Crump launched an appeal to overturn his conviction. His lawyer argued that gruesome photographs should not have been presented to the jury and that the confession should have been thrown out. The Kansas Supreme Court refused to overturn the conviction. Two years later, he filed a motion to vacate his prison sentence on the grounds that his car was illegally searched. Judge Earl Jones denied the motion. In the summer of 1995, 42-year-old Crump was allowed to apply for parole. He had served just 15 years, but at the time of the crime, Kansas had a law which meant that prisoners could apply for parole after serving 15 years. The revelation came as a blow to the Post family. As David said, it doesn't seem fair, does it? I thought a life sentence, especially six life sentences, meant life, but it doesn't, and we know that. We are bringing it all back up because there is a chance he could get out of prison if we didn't say something. The family had been distributing flyers throughout the state to remind the community of the horrors that Crump had inflicted on the family. When the parole hearing rolled around in July, the Post family attended and made tearful pleas to the parole board to keep Crump behind bars. Irene, Richard's widow, pleaded, I beg you not to let this man out. They had managed to collect 1,300 names for their petition opposing the release of Crump. A number of the investigators on the case also appealed to the parole board. Police Chief Jeff Herman said, The reason we have prisons is to keep the Danny Crumps of the world away from decent, honest citizens. He remarked that Crump still showed no evidence of remorse and that if he were released, then the remaining members of the Post family would never feel safe. The following month, the parole board announced they had denied Crump's bid for freedom. This meant he would need to spend at least another three years in prison before he could apply again. In January 1997, Crump's father, Daniel Crump, was found dead in his home. He had been robbed and strangled to death by his neighbor. Crump's next parole hearing rolled around in July of 1998. He was once again denied parole. This time, he would need to wait 10 years before seeking parole again, after a new law was introduced in Kansas, which meant that inmates had to wait longer between parole hearings. His parole was denied again in 2008, 
and then once more in 2018. Danny Crump still remains incarcerated today. With each parole hearing that comes up, the surviving members of the Post family are forced to relive their worst nightmare. As Cindy recently said, it just parachutes me right out of my happy world and back to that day. Despite the influx of emotion and grief that comes with the hearings, it's something that the family are all willing to do in a bid to ensure that Crump never sees freedom again. This episode was researched and written by Emily G. Thompson, editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman, script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law and Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. We will be back next week. Thank you for listening and please be safe.